Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, it's Kyle Meredith, host of the Kyle Meredith with podcast, presented by WFPK at WFPK.org and the Consequence Podcast Network. It's a series that puts the spotlight on iconic musicians and actors, inviting them to drop by and talk about their latest projects, whether it's albums, TV shows, films, or beyond. I'm going to say something I don't want to say. Here it goes. Without Spinal Tap, there is no Tenacious D. (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) Man. We get great stories and the biggest scoops from people like Garbage's Shirley Manson, the 1975's Maddie Healy, Jack Black and Kyle Gass of Tenacious D, Maya Hawk, Kiefer Sutherland, and everyone in between. New episodes arrive every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, so it's a great way to keep up with your favorite artists and discover some new ones. You can find Kyle Meredith with on the Consequence Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. The Beat Girl is the cartoon drawing that the Beat commissioned as their logo. It came to represent not only the band, but two-tone ska, much like Walt Jabsko, which is the cartoon ska guy the specials made. In the case of Walt Jabsko, his likeness was inspired by a photo of Peter Tosh from 1960s Jamaica. The inspiration behind the Beat Girl was taken from a photo in Melody Maker in an article about the two-tone ska revival. The photo is of Prince Buster dancing with a woman. Not much was known about the woman in the photo, even though she inspired an iconic image. Longtime ska fan Joanna Wallace wanted to know more about the woman behind the beat girl. So she did some digging. And some more digging. And she learned so much that she created a 30-minute documentary called Blue Beat Baby. You can see it on her YouTube channel, Miss Upsetter Designs. Today, we talked to Joanna about her film and her ongoing quest to uncover the life of Brigitte Bont, the woman in the photo. And Joanna still wants to know more about Brigitte. So if you know anything, email Joanna at BrigitteBond1964 at gmail.com. I had actually put off watching the documentary Joanna made until we were going to do this interview. Oh yeah? How come? I'm just busy. But you know what? It's only 30 minutes. I shouldn't have put it off. It's a really good documentary. More people should make 30-minute documentaries because everybody's busy. And not every documentary has an hour and a half of content. And, I mean, also, the story's not finished. Joanna's still still doing research, still trying to figure out things about the Beat Girl. And uh, maybe, maybe the Beat Girl's still out there. Maybe she'll hear this. That's a very important point. Um, and, we, and we'll get into this in the interview, but yes... Joanna is still looking for uh, more information about Beat Girl. And so if anyone's listening and has any information at all that could be of use, even if it doesn't seem like it's very important, contact her. And, uh, you know, you might be able to help this documentary, you know, become even more developed. And if you haven't watched the documentary yet, you can pause this podcast and watch the documentary and come back to this, or you can watch it at the end. 
before we begin the the topic we're talking about, why don't you tell people a little bit about uh, who you are? Oh, geez. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I've been into ska most of my life. Um, I am an artist. I'm a creator. Uh, I'm a huge nerd. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm a rude girl in the rude world. I don't know. That's really lame. <laughs> Jesus. What was your entry point into ska? So my my entry point wasn't necessarily chosen. Um, so when I was a kid, I grew up I grew up in a suburb of Phoenix, um, in Mesa, and you know, eighties nineties kids we just played outside all the time, and you know the oldest kid in the neighborhood would kind of watch over us. Uh, I thought he was really cool. He was into all sorts of music. So we we always had music going on on the boombox when we were outside playing as kids. Uh, but he would, when it was his turn, he would put on stuff like Skank and Pickle and Fishbone. And I was just like, oh my God, that's incredible. I didn't really connect the dots that ska was a whole genre and subculture until I hit junior high and met some of my fellow ska fans and it's basically history from there my junior high is not too bad that's sooner than a lot of us figured it out yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) well i mean we were like obsessed obsessed um you know we would go to shows all the time sometimes three to five a week you know we had a pretty healthy scene there um so it just became my whole life (laughs) And so now um, you're talking about you make art, um, misupsetter designs. That's your um, brand. Yes, I know you make pins and different things like that. Uh, people can find you, like on Instagram, or I think you have a website too. Yeah, um, misupsetterdesigns.com, and I'm at misupsetterdesigns on Instagram. So before we, so th- you made a documentary about who the inspiration was behind the English Beats cartoon logo the, that we refer to as the beat girl is that the official name of the character or is that just what everyone sort of calls her yeah that's that's what it seems like she was named early on but i think as time and ska oral history does its magic she's gotten other names throughout her lifetime but i think the beat girl or the go feet girl are her official names yeah what are the other names um <laughs> beat betty uh i've heard judy jabs go i've heard margaret which is weird because someone's not understanding song lyrics oh. um, <laughs> <Stand> down, margaret, <laughs> yeah. um i and and mostly like i've heard oh walt jabs goes girlfriend mm. it's a little reductive yeah that's how we define women in ska is just <laughs> most people have seen the image of walt jabs go that's the cartoon logo that is associated with the specials and two-tone label itself. Mm-hmm. That history was pretty well known. Um, it was designed after a, an image of Peter Tosh from the from his Sky years, and that was I know I think Jerry Dammers and uh, Horace thought of the concept and uh, what was do you remember the artist name? Yeah, so it was Jerry Dammers who saw the picture of Peter Tosh dressed as Fred Cash of the impression. So it's kind of, it's kind of meta already. Um, and he kind of drew something up and connected with the artists over uh, a chrysalis. 
Um, so Peter Wagg was the creative director. Um, David Story and John Teflon Sims were the artists and designers. Yeah. I think I was, wa- I was watching, um, it was in the, uh, the, that noisy documentary about two-tone. Yeah. Was it David Story that they were talking to about it? Um, or was it the, um, I can't remember if it was him or the other guy. I think it was John Teflon Sims. Okay. Yeah. He said that, uh, he made the fist specifically made the fist really big because he wanted it to convey aggression. (laughs) (laughs) So this, this image is exists for a little while. The the beat, they kind of come a little bit after the specials and the selector and madness from Birmingham. They end up making their own cartoon logo. The story that I've heard, and I'm curious what your take on this is, is that Dave Wakeling supposedly said that, oh, you know, their early shows were just filled with men and very aggressive, and he he wanted to encourage women to show up and men to kind of calm down, and that's why he made a a female dancing logo. Is that is that accurate to your? That's what I've heard too. So I mean, I don't know how accurate as far as its effectiveness goes since I wasn't alive yet. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, But if, you know, he's a primary source, he's in the band. I believe it. (laughs) Both of these cartoons are pretty synonymous with ska and pretty synonymous with two-tone ska specifically. Mm -hmm. Like I think that they've gone beyond just people don't necessarily go specials, English beat. They represent something greater than the bands themselves. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. You know, it's it's the visual language of subculture is so important and it transcends bands. You know, if if it's really good, it can it can be part of a movement. And at that time in England, there's a lot of great imagery. And I think Walt Jabsko and the Beat Girl are definitely up there. They have, I mean, you could, you could go to any continent on the planet and see like a ska flyer, you know, if they still make flyers, uh, with them on it and no, there's, there's ska or same with checkers, you know, it's ska. As a woman in the ska scene, um, the, the beat girl, was that like an image that was important to you or what was the importance of that image to you? Oh, it was like. There aren't a lot of women in ska, if, you know, we were honest. Um, and there weren't that many representations of women at that time, especially when I was growing up. Um, so seeing seeing the beat girl and then seeing women in two-tone bands was like, holy crap. Like, this is, this is an image of a quality that is awesome. And I... I loved the beat girl design from the get-go. And she was actually my first tattoo. Where did you get it? I got it right on my right bicep. Big, nice. bold. It was not well done. I was tattooed way too deep. <laughs> it, no, seriously, it. I, I got it removed, which makes me really sad. But she like blurred out so bad that people would like, it, it was the one with her and the, the record player, like asking if she, it's a woman cooking. Like, is that a mm. stove? And I'm like, oh my God. And her face was just busted, so I got her lasered off, and makes me sad. But yeah, she was my first tattoo. You could always get it done again. I know. I've actually considered it. <laughs> <laughs> you might have to now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The Beat Girl was drawn by Hunt Emerson, who was a fairly well-known, like kind of counterculture uh, cartoonist in England at the time. Mm-hmm. 
it was taken from a photo that he saw in, in a Melody Maker issue in uh, March of 1964. 79. Oh, I'm sorry. It was of 79. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So it it was it was an article about um, the two tone revival. Oh, gotcha. And okay. They, yeah, and they were kind of talking about the history of ska. Gotcha. So the I'm sorry, the photo was from 64, but the yes. article was that he saw it in was in 1979, and um, it's a Prince Buster is dancing with the the woman who was inspired the beat girl. I don't think so. Hunter Hunt didn't know who the woman was, and I don't know if the newspaper knew anything about her. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's no information about her in that article at all. That's kind of the, how, where it stayed for a number of years. It was a, uh, a woman dancing with Prince Buster. Mm-hmm. It was the inspiration. And you decided you wanted to find out who the woman was in that photo. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that first moment when you realized you wanted to go down this rabbit hole? Um, I've always wondered you know, who is she? What what was she like? You know, because I think up until recently, most people had seen that image of of Hunt Emerson's drawing holding kind of a, it looks like a gridded um, Xeroxed drawing for, for reference or photo for reference. And it's really hard to tell what she looks like because of the, the copying and it just totally blew out her face like my tattoo, ironically. <laughs> and <laughs> um, so she she was kind of this, whatever you wanted to make her. And yeah, like I, I just wanted, who who is that? Why, why has she had such an impact? And as I started to unravel the story, it just got more and more wild. I was not expecting this. I was not expecting to make a documentary. It wasn't like, mm-mm. Um, yeah. But Going going back to like when I decided to to dig into it, it was I was I was planning on continuing my Banbury badge reproductions for my business, and I wanted to make something with a a bit of a nicer face. Like no offense to Hunt Emerson, but just something something a little cuter, something that's more based on the woman um, of the other photos I've seen of her with Prince Buster, and started doing image reference research and came across that eBay photo or that photo I found on eBay. Yeah. So um, before we, I'm curious about that experience, but yeah. So one of the things that um, Hunt has said in an interview is that he deliberately wanted to make it unclear what her ethnicity was. Mm -hmm. That was one thing that he, he, and I think it's kind of what you're saying. He kind of wanted there to be a certain vagueness about her that you could sort of see whoever in it, I think. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and then I found another quote from him. That's kind of, um, funny, I guess is the word. Um, he was like, I don't know who she was. Uh, I wonder where she is now. Probably fat with six kids. Oh, geez. That's awful. Yeah. (laughs) I don't, I I don't find that funny at all. You know, it just shows like, we don't view her as a human really. It's just like this, this object. I, I don't know. He probably didn't mean it in a cruel way. You know, he's probably being silly, but as a woman, I'm just like, oh, God. Yeah, but you like, can't <laughs> help but bristle at that. Yeah, yeah. I know. I read that and I was like, ugh. Yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's tacky. Yeah. So the photo you found. Um, so first off, when you, when in the documentary you show this photo, and I was like, how, for my first question was, how did you even find this photo on eBay? Like, and how did you even know what to look for? 
I I just looked up Brigitte Bond. <laughs> okay, so how did you know? Was her name already um, available? Yeah. Um, so there there have been some photos, and, and this I think we'll probably touch on this later too. Of just so much is getting digitized now, and mm-hmm. you know, probably within the last decade or so, there were some um, photos that were purchased as a collection by Getty images or, you know, just like those, those stock image sites where you go for licensing. So once those popped up, that's, I, I recall that's around when I learned her name, like, Oh my God, that's her. Okay. Yeah. So you knew the name Brigitte Bond and, and, and also you say this in documentary, we'll, we'll, we'll clarify this here too. You've never heard her name pronounced. So you're guessing that it's pronounced Brigitte. Yeah. So it might not even be pronounced Brigitte for all we know. Yeah. 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 You found this photo. Um, what, what is the photo? Explain the photo itself. Um, so it is an actual archival photo from, you know, just, uh, what's the word? It, oh, it's like Newsline. Some, some company, you know, they would send out the news with uh, pictures and stuff for newspapers across the world. And so it is an original photo with the story on the back. Uh, And the first line says Brigitte Bond, who used to be a boy. And that was kind of like, wait, what? (laughs) And then as you go on, it says like, oh, well, she used to be engaged to Sir John Waller. Like, okay, so we have nobility involved. And then it says that she has an inheritance. So it's just like, what? So that's what got me started being like, okay, I haven't heard this before. Let's start digging. And it just, it, that's, that's when I opened the Pandora's box and it didn't, it's still not fully shut. (laughs) But seriously, it was like five months straight. That's all I did. I was, it was, it was like some sort of, it was, I was obsessed, but it was like, some sort of weird possession too. <laughs> Backing up just slightly on, on eBay, how much does a photo like this cost you? Um, it can really depend. Um, I, I've actually been a fan of this medium for a long time. Um, and I, I like to buy like really weird photos like that and, and <laughs> frame them. So like I have photos in my hallway of like, uh, Geisha and Maiko bowling, um, you know, just weird striptease stuff. Like, so I, I've always looked, I mean, it can go as low as like a penny to mm. hundreds of dollars, depending on what it is. I would say average, you're looking 15, 20 bucks. Yeah. But in this case, I mean, 15, 20 bucks well spent. Yes. Especially when you turned it over and it had, had these notes on the back. Yeah. Yeah. The paragraph on the back of that photo is like, yeah, it is. It's a crazy, like, you're like, oh my God, there's a crazy story here. Yeah. And what's interesting too, if you, if you Google Brigitte Bond, the first thing that shows up is one of those stock image sites. And and this might change as, you know, internet changes. But when you go into that, the description is, it says that she, it says medical sex change, da, da, da. And I kind of blew that off initially because there there is mismatched metadata and stuff that that happens through the archival process but when i found this particular photo that i knew for sure it was not crossed metadata 
so back to the back to the iconic photo that everyone has seen that the that the cartoon was draw was based off of. In the documentary, you have actual video footage of this whole experience. So Prince Buster uh, comes to the UK in like what is it, February of nineteen sixty four. And his intention is to promote ska. It, did he come to play ska, or was it more of a um, a, a larger sense of promoting ska? Um, I think it's it's both. It's both. You know, um, ska that in 1964 was really being amped up to be like the next Mersey beat. Mm-hmm. Um, music, the music industry at that time. That, that was the nature of it. What What's the new trend? And that's what they were promoting. And I think Prince Buster was particularly um, keen to this uh, because he moved in and, and he was on ska immediately. He was flying, you know, between Jamaica, the United States and England pretty regularly to promote ska. Now, it's my understanding that the U.S. had this um, trend, but this was a, a little later that it kind of start this this trend started in the UK first. Does that match your your understanding of it? It's around the same time. Um, that's something I I'm going to get into. I think with my next project. Um, but yeah, it it does seem like there was a intentional effort to make Scott happen, and it it didn't happen like they wanted it to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and it's just like, Oh, so he tried bless him, but <laughs> you know, capitalism, capitalism got its way in the end. Yeah. I've, I've, I've talked to some people, like I interviewed this band called the, the Marquettes or like a surf band, a U.S. like an LA surf band. Mm-hmm. And they got in the they got into the U.S. Scott craze in like the summer of '64. Oh, really? And um, yeah, it was interesting talking to him because he was like, "Oh yeah," it was like you know, it was the it was the latest thing for like you know a really short time, and then it was gone. And yeah. he didn't, you know, they there was very little understanding that this trend had its roots in Jamaica. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wonder if that would be the case in the UK, if they would have understood better its origins than, say, the US, where there's an even greater degree of separation from the subculture. Yeah, I, I think that there was a bit more of an understanding. Um, but I think, unfortunately, there there's also a factor of racism. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, I think, really shifted how ska was perceived initially because again I'm, i want to go into this it, like in my next documentary i'm like oh my god what have i started doing um <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure i'm sure you can relate but um so that the way that ska is talked about in the uk at that time even like leading up to it is so interesting and and the the words that they use are interesting like calling it insidious like what the hell? Mm. Um, so it's it's interesting how it was initially marketed and then reacted to, but it still got enough enough traction with young people, especially to yeah to to become what it did. I mean, like th- there is a difference though. Like I mean, the the, the trend that, that didn't really happen did sort of 
have a bigger impact on the UK and didn't linger longer because then you have the whole um the whole skinhead movement of the late 60s that did not happen here at that point so yeah it seems like whatever was happening i don't know i'm not exactly sure but it seems like that there was some gro- some movement yeah well they, they i mean having a jamaican community there that is active in keeping up with jamaican culture that actively brings in jamaican music and so if you look at how how the working class people that that were living near each other whether no matter their their race you were likely exposed to ska rock steady reggae if you were in a working class or immigrant area um and continued to be exposed to that whether you like it or not uh if you are in those Jamaican communities. Yeah. In, in the U S I think there was a bit more assimilation into American black culture, mm-hmm. which is um, what, you know, the big, the, the biggest indicator of that is uh, the development of hip hop where uh, cool Herc took Jamaican, who was a Jamaican and took sound system culture, but adapted it with soul music and, and black culture. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas like you're saying in England, the Caribbeans were immigrant. It was more of an immigrant community, and then yeah, they they did they did keep their to- culture intact more, and it, and it did bleed into the the larger culture to some degree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this ultimately leads to, like I said, the the skinhead movement, and then what ultimately then down the road becomes the two tone revival scene. Mm-hmm. But anyways, back to 1964. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, there's there's so much interesting yeah. stuff of of how subculture and music just spidered out, you know, just or it's it's so fascinating, but I really do think all of the subcultures that we love, that we resonate with started in Soho, for sure. Whether yeah. it's mod, rockabilly, ska, punk, you name it. It's it started in that square mile. So when Prince, Prince Buster came to the UK, he was greeted by a group of fans, I guess you could say. Yeah. Yeah. At the airport, you know, some young mods came out um, and he put on a little bit of a show for him. And so Brigitte was one of those people. Yeah. So she she came out along with some other Bluebeat artists at that time. Um to greet Prince Buster and they, I, Oh, I wish there was sound. I wish I could know what was, what was happening, but he had just arrived and yeah, the, the fans had come out to see him. (laughs) Is there anything known about Brigitte before that moment? Cause that's kind of where the chronology starts in your film as well. Kind of. Yeah. So, so she performed, um, before, that just slightly before so i think she was performing but i don't know the full scope of it and i also think at that time she was also you know working in the soho strip clubs so she was a ska singer as well as a dancer mm-hmm. now this is this is here's a, this is a side tangent um ska versus blue beat is there a distinct difference? Marketing. In- <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I cut you off. 
<laughs> no, I I have my own theories. I I think I think Blue Beat is, and and I say this, you know, as as a very obvious American, I I think that that it is just a marketing thing for for the UK. I mean, they refer to ska in the 80s 70s 80s is two-tone even though it wasn't on the two-tone label they just kind of referred to it mm-hmm. as that you know they they'll in the northern soul scene they'll you know say oh yeah i love you know these these tomla bands or these stacks bands it's just like oh okay it's not necessarily the artists it's the sound um i mm-hmm. also have a working theory and again i could be totally wrong that Scott just doesn't sound that good in <laughs> in those accents, you know? I could be totally wrong, but I think it's just marketing. Yeah. So and Blue Beat's a Blue Beat's a UK thing, except that uh, Chris Murray uh created the Blue Beat Lounge in LA in uh mm-hmm. two thousand two, I think it was, or two thousand three. But it's interesting because I think the reason he created that using that name was because it was so unknown. And then it, it's like, you don't have to deal with the, uh, the ska uh, baggage. You don't have to deal with the reggae baggage. It's a term that people in the subculture know. And people that outside the, the subculture are like, what's, what's blue beat? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. it's, it's interesting in that way that it's, it's mm-hmm. kind of become one of those words where it's like a, it's an indicator of somebody involved in the subculture. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think it's interesting because like they, they named the label. And because it sounded the original releases were kind of like blues and they had a different beat. So blue beat. <laughs> and oh, my God, I would have been so pissed if if I were Siggy Jackson <laughs> and all of these other bands were taking the term blue beat. I mean, even Island Records, which, you know, arguably is well, inarguably way more successful. Um, they were using the term blue beat, but BLU dash b-e-e-t or something like that it's so bizarre like it it's i i can't wait to dive into that because it is just so weird like i've been collecting stuff and i'm like what the fuck was happening (laughs) just out of touch people i think was a big part of it yeah and so you found uh so she she did release just one record that you're aware of or more records um Brigitte yeah so it says she claims that there are more records out there I haven't found them I found one that might be her but it's Brigitte Saint Jacques I I don't know I think I think it has a good chance but I can't confirm it so I I just I didn't include anything that I couldn't like double verify in my documentary yeah, that seems possible because later in the documentary, you, you, she's she's going by Brigitte Saint John. Mm-hmm. So Saint Jacques, you said. I mean, that's yeah, pretty, pretty close. close. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, and if we're already messing around with the spelling and stuff, then yeah, why not? Why not? So she's playing. You're kind of going through um, the scene, this whole scene, and kind of where she's playing. Do you want to kind of set that stage a little bit of like what's happening in that area and, and what you're aware of that she's doing in this sort of 1964 time period? So in 60s London, the Flamingo Jazz Club is where all of the Jamaican music was really happening. Um, you had Duke Vin there who 
he was the first person to have a Jamaican style sound system outside of Jamaica. Um, and the clientele was typically a lot of West Indians and black American airmen. Um, so when the Profumo scandal hit and Christine Keeler and Johnny Edgecombe and all that whole situation happened, I think the military knew that there was some shit going down and they're like, nope, we got to get these guys out of there. We don't want to get involved with this espionage bullshit. Because of that, that opened up space for the new mod subculture to move in. So more, there's more space for mods. Mods picked up on ska and that's how ska kind of worked its way into subculture. Mm. Yeah. So at that time, a lot of, a lot of Jamaican music was just done in kind of like sound system dances and, um, you know, people could rent out a bar and like put on their own kind of little blue beat nights. That was just the best, most effective way to do that. And also records were expensive. So people usually had to go out to be able to enjoy music. So 64 hits and blue beat is planning to be the big thing. And bands are moving in on it. So Georgie Fame, who was the resident, his band, him and his band were like the resident band at the Flamingo Jazz Club. They started getting involved with some Jamaican sounds. And I think that made it a little bit more approachable for some white audiences. Again, I can't prove that, but the what I've read from people, it's like, oh, yeah, like we're we're already into black music, we're already into jazz. Why not Jamaican music? So that's kind of where it caught on. Hmm. And yeah, and while Prince Buster was there, I mean, he recorded um, that I feel the spirit a few months prior with Georgie Fame. So there's that kind of cross cultural connection. Um, and he also appeared on Ready Steady Go, which was the show for teens at that time. And so Brigitte at this time, she's singing at, at the various clubs in this sort of scene. Yeah. So that that scene, it it just seems so interesting, super DIY, you know, these these clubs, these town halls, whatever. People were making things happen. A lot of bands were popping up. And she was singing at coffee shops, which were also it didn't they weren't necessarily formal music halls, but that's where you could get together and make some noise with your friends. You know, Skiffle got its, you know, nails or whatever <laughs> into, uh, <laughs> like, seriously, Skiffle Skiffle was huge there. And, I mean, that's, without that, there's not the Beatles. Oh, gosh. I, I feel like I sound like um, that Charlie Kelly meme, you know, with it's all of the conspiracy theory stuff. It is just so <laughs> wild how small and interconnected all of this stuff is. I mean, yeah, the Beatles were probably hanging around at the Flamingo Jazz Club at that same time. Same with Rolling Stones. <laughs> I like to think about you working on your documentary and having a wall like that with all the oh. <laughs> things pinned to it. I thought about, you know, putting my face on on that meme. Um, but uh if I don't know if either of you've seen the show, like uh, I think it was uh, Inventing Anna. I f I was like that. Like I even had an emergency surgery in the middle of my research. I was like, no, I have to do my work this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Back to the the photo that sort of started it for you, the uh, the one you got on eBay. You said that this kind of it was off the, off to the races from there. So what exactly what exactly happened at that point for you? What was your thought process about how to actually dig deeper into this whole thing? Yeah. So I, I dug in initially with what are the details on the back of that photo. So I started looking into John Waller. I started looking into um, the trans community in -hmm. London at that time. I started looking into just any little detail that I could and inched my way to creating a solid story. Mm -hmm. Um, I could not find much on Google and it is almost, I I thought Google was pretty complete before. It's not. (laughs) There's so much out there that isn't searchable through Google, so many different archives. And so I started looking through any archive that could somewhat be related to this topic. And I mean, so much of it was just irrelevant. So yeah, digging through newspaper archives, looking through ancestry and family search, looking through just, oh my gosh, you name it, just reaching out to people, feeling like a creep, leaving comments. Like, I was desperate, man. <laughs> were, were there any people who were instrumental in helping to point you in the right direction? Um, yeah. So Heather Augustin, she's a friend of mine. So I, I had started digging into this on my own. And at that point, I didn't think much else would come of it. You know, maybe I would put a little thing online, be like, hey, this is what it is. But I got stuck around 65, 66. And I knew Heather was writing her Rude Girls book because she interviewed me for it. So I hit her up. I'm like, hey, I know you wrote about Brigitte in Songbirds. Do you have anything on her? Like, I am just trying to find some answers. And so she texted me back and we had this kind of back and forth. I'm like, yeah, I know all that. And so we're like, okay, cool. Well, I'll let you know. So I shared all my stuff with her. She shared hers with me. And so that we kind of went back and forth with, with our research. But we were both stuck at that point. After that, I, I spent a couple weeks digging to try to find what happened to Brigitte. And she changed her name. Makes things really hard. <laughs> <laughs> How did you find out that she changed her name? Uh Slowly and surely looking through like every Brigitte who's ever existed. (laughs) (laughs) Like seriously, it was awful. It was awful. Like I I knew she she had acted or she said that she acted. So I went to IMDb and I started looking through every single Brigitte. And I did not find her on there. What I actually found that led me to her, her different name, was um, a flyer through... uh, Ready, steady, gone for Brigitte St. John, the folk singer. And I just Googled Brigitte St. John. I didn't know it was a folk singer at that point. But I saw a folk singer and I saw a very pretty woman. And I start, I'm like, oh my God, is this her? Is this her? And I spent a couple days just cross checking as much as I could for Brigitte St. John to see it was her. I could not find it until eBay came in and saved the day again with another original news photo that said that she was a stripper who used to be a boy. So 
that was my smoking gun. So you said that you, um, you looked at, so we'll talk about Sir John Waller after this, but cause that's a crazy story. <laughs> the whole thing is. <laughs> <laughs> but, but realizing that she was a, a transgender, uh, you wanted to understand the LGBTQ community of that time and that, of that place. So what did you discover about that? Um, Soho was, was a very gay, queer, LGBTQ plus friendly place. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of the folks who were involved with music, especially the managers, were gay, like gay men. And I can't prove it, but I do think that Tom Littlewood, who, who was manager at uh, Two Eyes, I'm pretty sure he was gay. John Waller was gay. I mean, it, there's just, it's, it was a very LGBTQ community. Yeah. The, the impression I got was that a lot of the same clubs, the like sort of the underground music clubs overlapped with the um, LGBTQ community, whether or not they were directly part of that scene. It just seemed like all, all of the, all of the counterculture elements all commingled. Yeah. Yeah, um, I think for anyone who wants what feels like an accurate depiction of Soho at that time, and there's not ska in this, but check out the movie Last Night in Soho. Um, it is horror, and uh, it's very good, but it was particularly horrifying to me at that time because it has to do with researching someone, <laughs> specifically a woman who, yeah. You know, I won't spoil it, but I feel like they did a really good, and I kept coming across that team's research when I was researching Soho too, but it, it was a place where you could be who you wanted to be. I think that's the best way to sum up Soho. Even if you weren't that person yet, you could be that person in Soho. So there was a freedom. There was a, a bit of an element of anonymity. Yeah. And, and just like general acceptance, like kind of what, what, stays in Vegas or what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas mentality there. Um, And a lot of the clubs were considered private clubs, which allowed them to be exempt and operate outside of law. But a lot of those clubs were also owned by, you know, criminal organizations. So a lot of the times the cops turn a blind eye because they were paid off. And if you weren't paid off, you could get raided. I see. Okay. So they, you know, yeah, the club owners knew how to, how to stay in business and how to yeah keep their, their clubs from being raided and keep everyone feeling like it's a safe place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, celebrities, it was, it was a popular place for celebrities to go. Even after they became famous, you know, Beatles, Stones, all, all of the big names that you think of when you think of the sixties would still go hang out in Soho because that's, that's really where the new stuff was happening. So, um, Sir John Waller, we'll just touch on this briefly. Um, cause it was in that original photo. He was going to marry her, um, in order <laughs> to get his inheritance, but then but either she left him or he, I don't know. You tell the story. <laughs> yeah. I, th- I think, I think the way it was portrayed is that they got engaged and it was quickly broken off because she was trans. And like you said, he he's a gay man. He wasn't 
he wasn't marrying for love anyways. He had no. a, his parents were rich and were only going to give him his inheritance if he produced a uh, a son. Mm-hmm. And once the son reached the age of 10, then he would re- get, get his inheritance. Yeah. And I mean, I don't want to speculate too much on that, but it almost that that stipulation in inheritance, while I know it may be somewhat normal for nobility, it seems cruel in a way. Um, it seems like people knew John was gay and that they wanted to change him. Yeah. So maybe getting him money motivated. I'm not sure. Again, I try to just keep my speculations out of the documentary because who knows? I mean, I, I have a feeling that they were both in on this. I have a feeling that they, that this was pretty much a publicity stunt because John throughout his escapades of being a bachelor, I mean, new shit every day. Like, Oh my God, he, this one on, like he, he had the newspapers paying attention to his whole inheritance bullshit for like 15, 20 years. <laughs> yeah. Really? Wow. Yeah. It's, it's dumb. Um, <laughs> I don't know. In a way though, like these kinds of things were how people hyped themselves. You know, now we have Instagram, we have TikTok, we have all sorts of social media to get ourselves noticed if we're doing something back then you don't have that. It's hard to get on TV, especially when there's only a handful of TV channels, there's only a handful of radio stations, etc. So what do you do? You get yourself in the newspapers that gets in front of a lot of people. And they both, they both did an excellent job on that. So, okay. So that, that story kind of for, for, for Brigitte, she's just a, she, that's just a little piece of her story, but I mean, obviously it was significant for your uh, for you for tracking down the bigger story, she was a singer, and she and you you have record of her playing and singing at different clubs. But you also see that she's a dancer, a stripper as well, uh, and an actor. Is this all happening at the same time? I believe so. Yeah, um, and I think when people now hear the term stripper, it's it's a very different mental image than back then. And that's why I try to include some of it, but I also didn't want to get like my hand slapped from YouTube too much, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but there were like weird little acts, you know, strip clubs would have singing and dancing and it, it was like a strip tease, more like how we, we see burlesque today, mm-hmm. I think is, is right. more accurate. Um, and at that time, depending on, the location uh women weren't allowed to get fully nude <laughs> and unless unless if they were standing still they weren't allowed to move what? yeah uh, isn't that that is so weird <laughs> yeah it's really bizarre and so like women would come out fully nude on a stage and it was almost like you know a life drawing class or something and they just stand there <laughs> yeah, stand stand or sit and and if they if they moved, like sometimes, you know, cops would be there, the the owner would get a ticket if if she moved before the the curtains went back. <laughs> yeah. That's so weird. It's so weird, but like some some women did get fully nude like Brigitte did and you know, she it sounds like they got raided and they weren't paying off the cops or whatever. And she, she was caught. It was just, things operate on such a 
bizarre standard back then. Yeah. Yeah. Now, see, it seems like also um, you have, you kind of place her in, in the UK in the mid 60s. And then uh, she's, there's different periods of time where she's in Spain, Italy. Um, she's taking trips to Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know to what degree you have a, a solid sense of the timeline. Um, but what what is the best understanding of your t- of of her timeline? You know, get, going from the mid '60s to the '70s. Um. Yeah. So that's actually how I started my research was just doing like a timeline. So and then I built the narrative around that. But I was able to piece together her timeline based on a lot of advertisements of where she danced. So she went all over the world, and I think that because you know, certain newspapers and other things aren't digitized and archived online yet. I can't necessarily find those. But in that final interview she gave, she said that that she'd been to every continent. I'm assuming not Antarctica, but (laughs) yeah, like there, there was, there was a very vibrant trans vedette scene in their circuit in the world, you know, in, Argentina, Japan, Mexico, all over Europe, these actors or these vedettes would just travel around and dance, live there for a little bit, and on to the next place. Hmm. And that was the circuit she was on, to your understanding. Yeah. And I know you 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 did find record of like her in a in like one or, or two magazines, erotic magazines. Yeah. It's it's one uh like photo shoot across three magazines by a publisher and they they put them out over a period of a few years. Wait, what was the name of that magazine again? Um there's Beautiful Brits or Beautiful Britons and Spick. <laughs> I think like Spick and Span. Oh, kind of, yeah, I, was I think like, what is this name? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's my assumption, but it seems like they really did not give a shit of what <laughs> i mean they're just like i mean if you read through the articles like they make no sense at all and it's just i mean it's a nudie magazine it's uh, yeah so you're definitely not buying spick for the articles <laughs> no no i think i think in one of them like the the information is so wildly off about her it's like oh her father's russian and this and that. i'm like this this is not her so they're just making they're just making things up. Yeah, yeah, and like with her age, I mean, it, they're like, "Oh, she's 22." I'm like, "No, nah, she's probably like 26 <laughs> in this right. issue." And then you also saw a couple instances of her being in um movies. Yeah. This was while she was in Spain that she was in movies? Yeah, I believe most of them were in Spain. So, um they're not good. <laughs> I, I'll I'll straight up say they're like mystery science theater level. Um, so yeah, I I think that she was doing those simultaneously while working, you know, at a residency at some club. Um, one of the movies though, she did go to Egypt for. Now, I know one of the movies was like she was a, a dancer for a dance sequence, but there was one where she had a line, right? Yeah, she she does have lines in the movies. Um, again, they're they're not. That great. I mean, just the overall movies are not that great. I, I admittedly, I did not watch all of them. I kind of looked for her 
because I'm like, this is so bad. Um, I I did watch all of Herostratus though. I, uh, not <laughs> not for me. What was the? Uh, there was a um, there was a James Bond movie that she claimed to be in, but you could never really find proof that she was actually in it. Yeah, Casino Royale, another stinker. Ugh, sorry. <laughs> I I went over that fucking movie with a fine tooth comb, and it's not good. It is not good. <laughs> um, yeah, it's also pretty racist. So, yeah, I mean it's it's got it it's got it all. Um, but I I think I think there's a high chance she was in that movie, but it was her scene was removed. Um, mm. The whole, uh, I mean, that's a whole other story. I watched a documentary about the making of that movie and it was just a nightmare. Like it, it was a nightmare to make. So yeah. In what way was it, was it a nightmare? The actors were awful or production, production problems? Uh, Like Peter Sellers being an asshole, being drunk on drugs or whatever, not showing up. I think Orson Welles could only film like, two minutes at a time because he, would, <laughs> he no he, he would sweat through his costumes because the lights were so bright and so yeah they could only film a couple minutes of that a day and those were in the casino where you have a bunch of extras so it was just having to set that up multiple mm-hmm. times a day um i mean just you name it they they went incredibly over budget so there might be footage of her somewhere out there, but I think I'm done looking for that because that movie's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> you, you don't think you can endure anymore? Uh, no, it's it's so like next level stupid. Like the best part is when Woody Allen dies. Like, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm being really mean, but it's just not a not a good movie. <laughs> oh, I think I did watch that movie like uh, years ago. Yeah, that is not. Yeah. I mean, I just chalked it up to like, oh, I, it's just uh, from a new, from a different era. Maybe it's just not for me, but yeah, maybe it is just a bad movie. Period. Yeah, I don't think it was that well received either. Okay, so um, tell tell the uh, Billy, Billy Graham story. Oh man, this is my this is my favorite. This is my favorite thing about her. So, Billy Graham. If, if people aren't aware, was a very, very influential preacher or evangelist in the 60s. And he came to the UK and he, he, he went there multiple times. But in the 60s in particular, came in and, and I think in general, people were like, why? Like, we don't need, like, look at, look at the state of the United States right now. Why, why do we want his level of evangelism in the UK. And I mean, of course you have people who follow him and all that, but he took it upon himself to go down to Soho and talk to the sinners, you know, try to let them know that they can come to Earl's court and throw money at him or whatever, but it didn't go that well. (laughs) Yeah. It didn't go that well. I think a lot of people showed up because they knew it wouldn't go well. And they just wanted to see the the chaos. Yeah. Yeah. And she made her way through the crowd. And and I think if you look at the footage, you could see people know her. Hmm. Like people are cheering for her. 
Yeah, you added some subtitles into the movie where you can, you know, there's people yelling, hey, Bridget. Yeah, yeah. And I think I think that's what they were looking for. She drove him out of Soho. And I think that's the only time that he cut a sermon short. Now, you you said something about how he had whatever was condemning miniskirts or something and that. Oh, yeah. He, he had made comments about, you know, women's fashion then. Yeah, how how mini skirts create sin? It's like, come on, dude. <laughs> so she was she was chasing after him, saying, "What do you think of my mini skirt?" And I don't know if it's because I'm so deep into this topic, or or what. But I swear, I can hear her voice slightly <laughs> saying, "What do you think of?" Just barely in there. I I have a feeling she was hounding him, and this wasn't the only time that she confronted him because it's you could see the staff like looking around and and he just knew immediately he just was like goodbye and he's out of there <laughs> like i love that and i mean that's my head canon of like she's just stalking him yeah <laughs> i'll accept that i like yeah. that yeah me too it it seems like her to me <laughs> well and my, my favorite thing about that scene too is she's she like climbs up on top of a car and she's she's trying to get his attention and he's like shuffling away in the, in the crowd and she's she's like continually like trying to like shout him down and you can see people kind of like like oh hey look at she's up there yeah and then and then she kind of like Somebody kind of helps her down and she kind of slides down the car yeah. and then it just kind of turns into a photo shoot. Yeah. <laughs> and she's like, oh, well, now I'm on the hood of this car. So I guess yeah. I'll just get some, get some cute pictures. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and she just hams it up. Like that's, that's what she wanted. And she, that's another way she found her, her way into the newspapers again. And I love her for it. So you, you put this uh, film that you made that took you, you said five months to make it or five months of research. Mm-hmm. Put it on YouTube. It's a half hour, but the movie isn't just a movie. It's also clear that you want to fill in the holes. You want to, you're hoping to put it out there to learn more about the, about Brigitte and about areas in the, her timeline that you don't quite fully understand. Or if maybe in fact, if she's alive, to get in contact with her, all that, all that kind of stuff. You're kind of putting it out there. Yeah. I'm curious, um, since you've put it out there, have you, have you learned anything of particular interest to you? Have you gotten any, any leads of anything? A little bit. Um, and I'll put like a big asterisk on that. I mean, I've heard, I've heard from people who saw her perform. Okay. Um, you know, so it just kind of confirms things and, it's mostly mostly like younger dudes who frequented Soho and are like, oh yeah, she she would get fully nude. She was loud. She was <laughs> there. Yeah. I mean, that's the consistent story. So I've heard that. So that further paints a picture. And that's helpful too. Right now I'm waiting. I'm, I'm working something out with someone in Portugal to get some info that is hopefully fruitful. But... Yeah, language language barriers, age. Um, unfortunately, a lot of people in that realm 
their life expectancies aren't as long due to violence and all sorts of stuff. So uh, it, it makes it hard. And I know I'm working against the clock because, unfortunately, people pass. Memories get mm-hmm. lost. So I, I haven't heard anything substantial, substantial, but I'm still looking out there. I've, I've been digging, you know, in some of my low probability buckets. I haven't really found much. Yeah, it was, it was interesting to see, like, um, comments like, and stuff, people talking about having seen her. Like that. That's like that's fascinating. I mean, that, people that were around that scene. Yeah, they must be up there at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any any theories as to? Yeah, because you're so. To, just to be clear, I don't think we've said this before, but your last, um, the last documentation you have of her was was when, like, early to mid seventies. Yeah, like nineteen seventy six in in Spain. Okay, so that's the last record you have of her. Yeah. So she did a month long residency at the Scarlet Club. She was doing like a like a tour of, of Spain at that time. Um, and after that, it's just, just nothing, just nothing. Hmm. Yeah. So I, I spent a while thinking maybe she changed her name again. I'm going to look through more Brigitte's. I'm going to look through, you know, I was mostly looking, you know, in transgender archives and all of that, looking at the 60s. Um, not really the seventies. Um, and I, I didn't, I haven't really found anything. I've reached out to some folks and, and Heather Augustine has too. And some other folks, um, who focus on trans history have, have asked around. No one, no one knows anything yet. Yet. So you kind of, we kind of talked about this already in the, in the Soho in the sixties, was a was overall a welcoming place for people in the trans community. Does that remain consistent through the seventies? I believe so. Um, Soho has hundreds of year, like a couple hundred year history of being like a red light district, and usually those places are where the people who general society doesn't accept go. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was it was well known for its its prostitution, you know, even early on, um, you know, I think starting 1700s or so. And it's just kind of stayed the same. Uh, there's been a lot of sex shops, there's been strip clubs, you know, it's, it's the land of, of sin. Um, (laughs) I've heard, I've heard it's become quite gentrified at this point. Um, but a lot of the buildings are still there. Yeah. For the, for the modern day images of the buildings in the, in the film, um, how did you source those? Google Maps, like <laughs> just like trying to get the right angle that it matches with like an old. They, I mean, that was the thing is the angles yeah. were really good. Yeah. So Thank I was, you. I was like, did you actually go all the way there just to take a picture of a of a chip shop? I would love to go there and be a little creep, you know. Sure. So, <laughs> I mean, it's always weird to see these spaces that are now, you know, maybe something more mundane. Yeah. And to think about the history in them. Yeah. And I mean, I'm like not a religious person that, that going there in Jamaica and stuff, that would be like my pilgrimage, my. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So it's, it's, it's a very, it's a very interesting, unexpected story that sort of from, from our perspective begins with this cartoon or this logo. Mm -hmm. And, um, 
tells the story, but it's also like a, it still is an incomplete story. It's like there's still a lot of lot we don't know. Like you don't really you don't really know who like much about her background, I assume, right? Yeah, I mean her her nationality kind of shifts and that that makes it hard. Um I I think for sure she's French. I've been looking into history of Marseille and their textile businesses to see if I could find some name that is linked to her or something. I mean, that's that's what you got to do. It's but she was supposedly born in Malta around World War II, which makes things even more difficult to track down. Sure. Yeah. Well, is uh, so I guess is there I mean, I think this is a good opportunity to just reiterate and if you wanted to, you know, get the message out there to anyone listening that um, you know, that you're still the story isn't finished and that you wanted to can, you know, anything that anyone has to to be helpful would be great and what would be the best way for people to contact you if they had any information that could be of use to you? Yeah. So I, I have an email set up that's specifically for this. So it's Brigitte Bond, 1964. I flashed that several times in the video. Um, I'm also working on getting, I, I like last night, I installed a blog on my site. I'm like, okay, finally going to get the timeline down for this one, you know, so it's out there. Hopefully, if people Google things, they'll find me and share. Um, and also, if people want to reference it and do their own research, that stuff is there. Or if they have the context. I know as an American who was born in the 80s, I don't have the same context as people who live there or lived through that time. So I'm hoping that that will help generate more leads. Um, but really, the thing that people can do that will help me the most is just share share, share, share. If you speak another language, let people know that the closed captions are translatable because that's that's one of my biggest barriers is language. Um, and I think a lot of older folks in that area of the world aren't necessarily using, you know, social media. They aren't like findable, if you want to put it that way. So sharing you know, they, they probably aren't looking for this stuff, but they probably know something. Um, I'm hoping to break into that, that realm and, and just get eyes on it. Yeah. Cause I mean, the whole Soho scene in district, I think in a way that might be a little bit more approachable than trying to yeah. f- look for leads in Italy and Spain and Africa yeah. and these other places that she'd been. Yeah. And I, I've, I've tried that. Oh, I've, I, that, what I mean by being a creep in comments is just like <laughs> these older folks' Facebook pages. And I'm like, okay, I know you were in the Cracksman and you played with Brigitte. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Ugh, yeah. And I'm not, I'm so uncomfortable with that stuff. Like, I am such an introvert. I'm so awkward. So, yeah. Like, I, I haven't even like directly reached out to like Hunt Emerson or or uh, Dave Wakeley or you know just any anyone directly like I'm like oh yeah I'm just bugging them, <laughs> <laughs> which I know that's not the case. It's just it's yeah I'm continually embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know it, it's you know you you spend five months 
beginning the process and th- this could be an, an, another you know another period of time of the word getting out and and pe- getting to the right people yeah 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 and i mean i part of that is also just like me resting my brain and like <laughs> trying to pry my head out of my ass of just you know so focused on on this project and just trying to rest like i i'm not exaggerating i did like nothing else for 5 months i worked and then i would work on this every spare minute i had until probably two, three in the morning every day. <laughs> it sounds kind of dumb, doesn't it? <laughs> no, it sounds great. So many people talk about doing a thing and then they don't do it. So it's always it's always inspiring to see somebody follow through and finish. <laughs> it's kind of funny because this, this also hit at a time where I'm like, I'm done with Facebook. Like this, this is <laughs> so, like I'm spending way too much time on here. And then I'm like, what else can I do to spend my time? Oh, I think I'm just going to go get obsessed with something that's never been done before. Durr. Like, <laughs> so uh, Facebook, every time you try to get out, they pull you back. in. Yeah, no, I, you know, I, I'll go back here and there, but I, I think I'm, I'm done for the time being. I've gotten a lot, a lot more good stuff done. And had you ever done any filmmaking before this? No, no, not, not like, yeah, like I, I've done some editing and stuff. Um, I, I mean, I've done some like tutorials, but like not nothing. I've never done like a research project at this level. Um, and I've also never done editing or something at this level. Okay. And then also just asking for myself when you're filming the parts where you're talking into the camera, Uh were you just there by yourself doing that? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Scroll back on my Instagram a little bit more, um, uh-huh. and you'll see outtakes of me going like, fuck shit. I hate this. I hate this. I, I, oh, and, and I, I wrote it in a way. So I would have to be in there as minimally as possible. Yeah. But I also knew like having a person guide you through. Definitely. It helps. So I was like, yeah. Ugh, the worst. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to In Defense of Ska. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe to the podcast wherever you normally stream or download episodes. If you haven't already, grab a copy of my book, In Defense of Ska, available at clashbooks.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. It's at In Defense of Ska. And please consider joining our Patreon at patreon.com backslash in defense of ska you will get monthly bonus episodes extended interviews and commentary per episode and access to the in defense of ska discord in defense of ska would not be possible without the great team that tirelessly works on it every week so you should go check out their other projects as well co-host adam davis has an amazing band called omnigon give them a follow on instagram and twitter It's simply at Omnigon. And our editor, Chris Reeves, has a phenomenal record label and podcast called Ska Punk International. For more information, go to skapunkinternational.com. And if you've ever enjoyed one of the highly specific in defense of ska memes floating around the interwebs, it was likely the work of the bands I like only charge $18. Find them on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. 
And on that note, we leave you by saying, Ska now more than ever. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.